This is a Danger Entertainment Podcast. DangerEntertainment.net Danger Entertainment Podcast Network. Hey, this is Evan. Hey, Jason Underwood. And we hope you're enjoying the shows on the Danger Entertainment Network now, including the Bearded Ones Comedy Podcast. Yeah, we're super thrilled to be a part of this awesome lineup, guys. Um, and what we do here on our show is it's look, we are just trying to make you guys laugh through all kinds of different avenues. Hear me out here. Yeah. Hear me out. Please. What we are is we're two geeky white dudes talking and trying to be funny. Yeah, not try to blow in your mind here with, uh, <laughs> with something brand, brand new, new, but um, yeah. you never heard anything like this we talk about star wars <laughs> talk about, we're talking about superheroes talk about marvel movies man <laughs> look we are we're cutting some damn we're, we're, we're breaking some damn boundaries over we here. are breaking new ground yeah but for real what we do is we play invented games yeah and we try to spin everything into a brand new fun game that we've made yeah. up um we filter it all through that sensibility and we're both improvisers so a lot of what we talk about ends up in in, in sort of a scene that we have a lot of fun with we talk about our lives pop culture and movies we talk about a little bit of everything so if that's what you like check us out bearded ones comedy podcast on the danger entertainment network they look like vikings Mike here. Check out our homepage, WeebyGeeks.net. Right hand side, it's our affiliates. Support them, supports us. Also, too, check out our partners, Found Me and Heroes and Villains. Click their images, and you too get 15% off your first purchase for using the code WeebyGeeks, all one word. Also, too, check out the picture that's got the rotating images. That's our web store. Great place to get all your Weeby Geeks, Mighty Marvel Geeks, and Wookiee Radio logo merchandise. So, all that can be found on the right-hand side of WeebyGeeks.net. You're listening to a Weeby Geeks Network podcast. Microphones and headphones provided by CAD Audio. CAD Audio, expression through innovation. Produced with podcasting gear from Tascam, including the Tascam Mini Studio. Trust your audio to Tascam. Sound thinking. Crisis for the geek kind. Top geek officials admit they underestimated the hipster's defense capability. Geeks from all over the globe are joining up to fight for the future. They're doing their part. Are you? Join Weeby Geeks and the Geek Revolution and save the world. Service guarantees citizenship. Want to know more? Do not attempt to adjust your device. This is a stream freedom audio bulletin. It cannot be traced. It cannot be stopped. And it is the only free voice left in the geek revolution. And welcome to another episode of Weeby Geeks. It is the dashing duo, Derek and myself, Mike. And we are being joined, gotta make sure I got the right people, by John Woodruff and yes, sir. James Matthew. <laughs> That was close. Jonathan Murphy. Jonathan Murphy. Sorry. <laughs> it's a hollow tree production that's throwing me off. And Tough, Mike's, and the excuse I'm going to stick with is I just got home from work clearly before we got on. So my brain's fried. It's the weekend. <laughs> no, it's my Monday. 
Uh, <laughs> never mind then. Um, and these gentlemen are involved with the movie, and it's a great movie, um, Animal Among Us. How are you guys doing? Great. I'm doing good. well. Yeah. Thank you guys for having us tonight. Well, it's our pleasure. Yeah. This is uh, week two of guests on the show. So we have an, uh, I'll spoil nice. it now. We got guests next week as well. But we're going to awesome. talk Animal Among Us. How did you guys come up with the idea for this movie? Uh, I guess uh, being the screenwriter, that's my question to answer. Yeah, um, <laughs> the uh, it had a lot of iterations, I would say, before it got to what is being seen by people now. Um, it had a lot of different variations in the original draft, but um, essentially the story came from, or what I will say, uh, survived from the original story that made it into this was. Um, Something out in the woods that um, after a long period of time, uh, people go back and start looking for that thing and and maybe thought it was gone or maybe thought it was dead. But uh, it's it's something is still out there. So I think that was the genesis and basis for the story that began. But I'd say 10 drafts later is where we ended up uh, with our first shooting script. Well, <laughs> was it only 10? <laughs> yeah. Only ten. That's that's a what, tight was number. Any inspiration for your um, the monster? Well, we'll just say the monster. I don't know how much you guys want to spoil because the movie doesn't come out until the nineteenth, correct? Of yeah, November. November 19th. Yeah, uh, and that's video on demand and streaming services. At this point, and it looks like that we've got a nice uh, Blu-ray DVD release oh. that'll kick up in December, and we also have a hard copy of our soundtrack and a digital copy of our soundtrack that'll be available through uh, Note for Note. Um, productions, which is we didn't expect, and it's phenomenal. And uh, yeah, and then the, the soundtrack's you know, we a great were, soundtrack, by the way. Yeah, yeah thank was, you. Yeah, our, our guys crushed it on that. Um, we're really proud of the work that they did, and and uh, was obviously hugely important to the film. But then we'll expand the release into 2020, so we're pretty excited about where it's going. But yeah, uh, November 19th is the first kind of the initial the initial push. So, so going back, was part of the idea for the monster any influence from the Simpsons Treehouse of Horror episodes? <laughs> <laughs> With the, uh, the I, I haven't seen the, the that Simpsons episode, so I I can't claim that. But okay, um, if it if it if it brings up that to you guys, I'll take that as a win. <laughs> yeah it's just something i thought about after seeing the film it's like wait is that it's similar i know there are other tales that are very similar um with that concept what made you decide to go that particular route with the the initial perceived monster this is a tricky course of conversation without these spoilers man i'm glad murphy has to handle these questions i'm gonna like, sit back and watch the show buddy <laughs> that's funny um i would say that the the basis for the monster i guess that we use in the in the movie we wanted we've obviously watched a lot of of genre monster films john probably more than i have but um we're familiar with a lot of the kind of hallmarks uh that folks that like the type of movies or or the classic type of horror things that we were trying to maybe go for or emulate in this um we wanted to have those undertones and kind of 
uh, have those uh, points of, uh, of homage paid to those guys that came before us, but also put in something that maybe was a little bit different or maybe was something that within a genre is a little bit um, unexpected. I won't say how it's unexpected, but um, we wanted to do something that was um, classic, but then maybe uh, a little different. Okay. Yeah, and if, if I can build on that real quick, one of the yeah. earlier conversations that Jonathan and I had, um, because obviously there were a lot of, a tremendous amount of conversations revolving around the creation of this monster, um, we kind of wanted to try to implement uh, the the factors in the equation that equates to a potential horror icon. So, you know, obviously you have to have, like, the weapon, and he has to be attached to a low cow. I mean, you've got Freddy's on Elm Street and Jason's at Crystal Lake. Um, and you kind of have to have some staple costume pieces. So we looked back at kind of how some of these earlier horror icons were born. And and I mean, we found it very fascinating, even with, of course, like Jason Voorhees, you know, it's like uh, first film, dude's barely in it. He's a kid, a drowned kid in a lake that pops up in like the last three minutes. Whoa, spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. (laughs) If you missed that 19, what, 79 film, I just ruined it for you. Sorry, guys. You had a few decades to watch it, deal with it. Um, But, you know, man, my night's ruined now. Yeah. In the next one, he's got a bag on his head and he doesn't even pick up the hockey mask until part three. So we were kind of looking at like that evolution of the character and kind of how they built like the mystique around these guys that became horror icons and that played a big part into a lot of the decisions that we made um in this film i have to say that um the the entire ending uh and the the origin of the monster and everything definitely surprised me i was not expecting it to go in the direction that it went in awesome yeah well i think i I can't speak for jonathan like i always love to hear that you know one of the things that i think jonathan did a great job of in this script and one of the things that we talked a lot about was we're so trained when we're watching cinema in this day and age to look for these standard tropes in whatever genre we're watching. I mean, be it horror, be it sci-fi, be it romantic comedies. There's just certain story beats that we come to expect. So with Animal Among Us, one of the things that John did brilliantly was, I think, serving the audience to where there's a degree of satisfaction in getting close enough to those tropes, but also keeping the audience off balance enough in the directions that he went to keep them kind of guessing, which the screenings that I've been able to attend at festivals and stuff, and when we were doing test screenings, um, I've seen like a really positive reaction to with audience members, which is really fun to watch because it is just a little bit different than what they're used to seeing. And, right. and for us, a big goal was to keep people a bit off balance throughout the film. Right. You know, well, right. I mean, per, 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 uh, preparing for tonight's interview. There we go. My mind's trying to get back in focus. Um, <laughs> I read some of the reviews on the film. And I know I saw one that, of course, I waited until after watching the film before reading them. Um, I saw one that you know, his critique was the the lack of seeing the monster is what mm-hmm. hurt the film. And I'm like, okay, without spoiling too much, <laughs> the monster that we've talked about in the origin, I don't I don't think it's the true monster or animal that's being alluded to here. So what we see of the creature, I think, is brilliant. We see just enough and get just enough to to throw that misdirection. Uh, if misdirection is the right 
way to go. I, I love hearing you say this. And I mean, thank mm-hmm. you so much. I think I can speak for Jonathan and myself as far as I, taking that as a huge compliment, um, because it was a very precarious balance. Like in and I think that he walked the line perfectly from a screenwriting perspective of of what we show and what we don't show, because at the end of the day um, and even with that review, the guy saying that he wished that he would have seen more of the monster. OK, uh, you know, fair enough, man, like everybody has their opinion. But I even take that as a compliment because, hey, leave him wanting more, you know, and that's what Jonathan and I talked about. And a lot of modern horror, we feel like it shows so much and it leaves so little to the imagination and so little is left for interpretation that it actually uh, it pulls the, the level of horror and the scary aspect down because it's just all put right out there in front of you. And so we went back to even I mean, it's it's maybe a cliche reference to pull, but it's one of the greatest films ever made. We went back to Jaws and the misfortune of that shark never working um, to where, you know, Spielberg and, and Vera Fields, the editor, had to work around the shark. And it's probably the greatest thing that ever happened yeah. to that film, because if they would have shown that huge rubber shark for 45 minutes of that movie, it would not be what it is. And right. so Jonathan and I, we spoke a tremendous amount about that and clear through editing. It was just how much do we show? How much don't we show? Are we showing enough? Like, so to me personally, I mean, I, I take obviously the guy's critique and the review is a huge compliment and what you just said is a huge compliment. And for what it's worth, I feel like you wholly got what we were going for. Well, I, I'm thankfully this is an audio podcast and the video is just so we can have that around the table type vibe. So I'm going right. to go the monster <laughs> is actually, and there's air quotes, the monster. Um, yeah. You actually see quite a bit. And I'm this hoping, is true. And I'm actually hoping I'm saying it without spoiling anything because the I, I movie's not because the movie's not out yet and i don't know how much you guys want to spoil the you know the i think <clears throat> i think the way the conversation is going now is great i i feel like if i was a, a listener my interest would be peaked and i'd be like what are you guys <laughs> talking about but i don't know what do you think murph uh, I think it's uh, no. I think you you said that nicely. I, I would just say that it, it is nice to hear you say um, what you just said because that was a not an easy task in the writing process. Once when that stuff is on paper, you know it, it works in your brain and you know in the theater of your imagination, but. When it's fully executed and and part of the movie and and you actually see what you intended um, come through and and get the message that we were trying to get across, uh, that is very nice to hear. So, thank you for that. Yeah, you're welcome. You could put you could put that on the DVD cover. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, now, with, with um, forgot where I was gonna go. <laughs> I hate when that happens. And this is happening way too soon. Usually it's yeah. the end. No worries. Um, with the, we were talking um, in text before show, uh, Derek and I, the twist to the whole story, um, I thought was foreshadowed brilliantly uh, about how, I, I want to say almost the halfway point. Anyways, I, 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 would, I would say if you go back and check it again, I think you're going to find foreshadowing even probably second and third scene. Mm, really? And, and mm. I, I feel like, the, again, this is another thing that Jonathan did great. Um, and it was interesting because when, so when I 
I first became involved with the project, he, he had a pretty early, it was a pretty early draft and there was a lot going on. And so as you know, we started like going back and forth, really talking through the story and trying to really figure out what it was about. One of the conversations that we had and not just once was about planting the seeds for conspiracy. So if you're going to have a twist, if you're going to have a conspiracy, you have to have the foundation for that. And I think that Jonathan did such a great job in kind of like leaving a little trail of breadcrumbs throughout the film that emotionally kind of like starts to set you up for that twist to where you can kind of, you know, really accept it when it does happen, but not spoiling it. Um, by the halfway point, you're right. Like definitely should be hitting foreshadowing then, but I think there's a few little trinkets even earlier in my opinion. Okay. So since, yeah, we're, since we're talking foreshadowing and I think, I think I can bring this up without creating spoils. Are we talking like the email that Roe gets when he pulls into the drive? No, to me, um, and Jonathan, obviously what you think, I think that there's a, a pr- this, the second scene of the film after the opening title card where we see, um, without trying to spoil anything, but basically we see Roland, our protagonist, um, in the office and he's working on his next manuscript. Mm-hmm. There are some very clever uh elements in that scene that Jonathan had written in that I think that since you're just being introduced to these characters and there's a decent amount of stuff that happens before the opening title card in the first scene um, that in that second scene you know you're kind of like sinking into it it's calm Um, we're learning a little bit about who this character is and what he's doing but there's actually some really nice really nice like little juicy tidbits in there that Jonathan I think like laid very effectively I think it and I think too the big clue in that um in that scene he's talking about is the the what Roland is writing and what lyric he's taken that from he's he's um, using the the line from the Who song so if you kind of give that song a listen and some of the themes maybe that are that are expressed in that song I think give a clue to who that guy is you know sitting there and typing this manuscript um, okay. and the reason why we kind of introduced him that way um, yeah okay yeah it's pretty fun I mean I think also then to Jonathan's point the third scene um, the scene immediately following that where he's kind of we see a little bit of his day-to-day routine where he's in, in the bathroom and kind of presumably getting ready for work um, there's a little there's a nice little uh, moment in that and then even as he moves into the bedroom and the fourth scene um, where we're introduced to his his wife and his daughter uh, there's a really nice I think kind of juicy tidbit in that as well which actually is just one of my favorite lines in the entire film that I you know I think from time to time I got to give this guy credit um, he comes up with these lines that really like stick with you you know they're it's not an easy thing to do like they're catchy they're memorable they're clear they're concise and they they leave in it they leave they, they resonate they stick in your head you know right. so those first those first three scenes after the opening credit there's a lot of uh, a lot of clues in there I was about to say don't and don't sell the first scene short we jump right into it i mean there's blood and oh, yeah. girls on the ground and the dirt rolling around and <laughs> all that sort of stuff uh, right at the beginning so there 
it's that's uh, hopefully a, that's people typical, jump right in. It's just a typical day of people trying to get into Nutsberry Farms. That's all. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> See, I, 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 this whole foreshadowing with y'all bringing it up, you know, the earlier part, I want to talk about it more, but I, I, it's kind of hard to do dodging part of it. <laughs> sure. This is where I can't, get, I can't get creative enough to do it without spoiling something. It's yeah, going to have no, to wait think, till after show. It's, it's tricky, you know, but I think like, I don't know, like I think you're walking a really good line and it's interesting. It's fun to have these conversations because throughout from, again, script development through picture lock, uh, Jonathan and I were having these conversations constantly. You know, it was always a question. It was such a precarious balance as to like how to position these characters and how much foreshadowing to have in and how much to pull back and how much monster to show and how much monster not to show that i mean it was it was a finite line that we were trying to walk right. and and so it's fun i think that that's still and, and i ironically our decision was always to show less it was Wait. you know the, the the guy with his um criticism of not seeing the monster <laughs> enough our our decision was always show less because you know obviously we were working with some restraints and 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 had to do things creatively and and on a budget but when we watched you know edits of things the more we saw of stuff the less we wanted to show of it if that makes sense i, I like the less is more concept yeah, yeah yeah i think that works better that way um i think maybe people are too spoiled these days with with horror movies and just throw everything out right away you know there's something to be said like you said with jaws or i was also thinking like like uh the first alien movie oh yeah you don't really you know you don't see the full alien and it's it's creepy and it's and blair witch too is a very similar kind of field i think that our film has yeah Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh. I mean, to your point with Alien, you're 45 minutes in before any real action happens in the original Alien, and it's yeah. just fun- it's just fantastic. You know, mm-hmm. it's you, you have to set some emotional stakes. You have to entice your audience before you give them something. And by Hollywood standards today, it is. It's like hit them hard, hit them fast, give them everything you've got. And once the once the the gag is up, like what are you left with? You know. So one of the perks of being a small independent film was that we could continue to pull things back and just be like, you know what? Leave them wanting more. Leave them wanting more. Less is more. Like, and we that was kind of became a bit of our mantra throughout the production. And without and without giving anything away, there. There is a finite amount of things with the the things out there that you can that you can use. You know, right. unfortunately, this doesn't have you know um, haunted Oldsmobiles or or big werewolves <laughs> and things like that in it. So um, there was creative aspects of that, but also you know a limit to where we wanted to go and what we wanted to do with it to still make. What I think is scariest, the things that are truly possible or could happen right. um, seem like a reality. Well, I, I'm going to say uh, we've we've partnered for a while with October Coast. And this time of year, we definitely have been hooked up with quite a few independent film stars, directors, actors, writers, right. producers uh, with a bunch of different horror films. Uh, and I'm going to go out on a limb now and say I, I almost think the indie horror films 
Worlds are better than the mainstream mm. just because awesome. they're they're more of like the old Friday the 13th, the old mm. Nightmare on Elm Street, the old People Under the Stairs, Shining. Yeah. That were the mainstream yeah. because, because it's the whole less is more mentality. Unless it's meant to be a, a campy horror film um, type film. You know, like um, I think the biggest one that comes to mind that was talked about last week was Attack of the Killer Donuts. Right. <laughs> and, that fits in, and that fits in with the killer clowns from outer space. So, yeah. Type five, yeah. Or Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. Um, you know, I, I mean, I totally agree with you. And, and I think that this is something that's like vital to success in the horror genre. The less is more thing. Because at the end of the day, what's more scary than the unknown? Like it's inherent in human nature to fear the unknown, be that change, be it evolution or just, you know, what's in the dark room um, in the house you've never been in before. But by big Hollywood standards, like they have this need, this urge and this ability to show everything. And when you do that, like you deprive the imagination. So in a sense, you take the personal aspect of horror out of the equation and therefore it ceases to work. It's what, what each person on this conversation, right? now what our greatest fear would be is all a little bit different like the enemy the physical manifestation of the enemy that we would all like be most afraid to face is is different now you might point something out and i might think oh yeah that's a great idea that's scary but at the end of the day it's still then open to our individual interpretation so once you show that thing the one guy's going to say that's the scariest thing i've ever seen and the other guy's going to be like i'm not scared of it at all and you just completely like compromise the genre and showing too much and, and I've talked to some indie guys here recently, and this is something that Jonathan and I kind of dealt with when we were exploring sales and distribution. You know, they want that hook, that hard, fast hook, um, and they want you to show stuff quick. So when we set out to make this film, our goal was to make something that would be commercially viable, that audiences would be entertained by and would get out there on as broad of a, a level as possible and, and build a fan base behind it. So again, like we were really trying to walk that line of like, by modern horror standards, how do we make it quick enough? How do we make it eventful enough? How do we make it fun enough that like the younger audience's members won't fall off because of the lacking instant gratification element, you know? And so we really tried to like pace it up. We really tried to show just enough to like pull you through, but still adhere to the old lessons more and leave something to the imagination. And you're right. The big films aren't doing it. And I think it really works against their effectiveness as far as like being scary. Yeah, I, de- I would definitely agree with that. It's uh, yeah, it can be, especially nowadays when people are so used to to horror films, and like you said earlier, they have certain expectations. And and I don't, even, I wouldn't even say horror films. It's just films in general. They want it handed yeah. to them. Right. It's they true. don't want to think. They want the screen That's to do true. the thinking for you. Well, and I think you know to that point, and and that raises a really interesting point. You know, it's like Jonathan is a great writer and very artistic i mean he plays guitar he paints like very artistic guy i'm pretty i mean i'm i've done a lot as well like kind of in in our creative and artistic growth so 
in creating the story, you know, it's like, yeah, we wanted to make something that was commercially viable. We wanted to make something marketable, but we did want it to also have some artistic merit. We wanted it to have a soul. So it was interesting because when he and I were first working, you know, together talking through these scripts, there was a lot of like strong social, socio-political commentary and kind of like moral themes and subplots. And in talking to like indie producers that were more experienced to us, they were loving that stuff. And they were like, yeah, bring it out, bring it out, flesh it out, flesh it out. But then we had the advantage of being able to talk to some big Hollywood guys and some Hollywood producers. And they were really pushing the like, you have to move the story, the fun factor, the action factor. So we kind of took all of that information and through, you know, just conversation after conversation, hopefully found a balance between the two to where we have like the fun filled, fast paced entertainment factor that a big Hollywood film would strive for. But we have the ambiguity and the socio-political commentary that an indie guy might love. The fun thing about it is, as we've been watching it, is we, in my opinion, in film, you're there first and foremost to be entertained. So, you know, your political or your social or your moral uh, agenda should never overtake the entertainment factor, unless maybe it's a documentary or a PSA. So in this case, I do think that Animal has succeeded in being a fast enough, fun enough film that it maybe isn't until people start to think about it three, four days later, talk about it with their friends or go back and revisit it, that they start to pick up on some of those really cool subplots and moral premises and socio-political themes, which, again, I think John Jonathan had a, a you know, just some really great uh, messages that he wanted to put in there. And I think that that worked very nicely in balancing that kind of like big studio fun factor with that small indie like film feel, you know, I don't I don't think I found a slow spot in the film at all. I thought the pacing was good. Yeah, good, good, good. And, awesome. And even some of the other horror films that I've liked in the past from independence, there were some slow spots, but it, it didn't take away from the film. This one uh, and the first time I watched it, I watched it at work between uh, my work breaks and even with the pause I came back going okay thinking yeah I think I might have stopped at a good spot I'm like nope I gotta go back a minute to get right back up to speed right um and, and it was still easy to remember okay what has happened I just need the, the minute to build back up to the scene because I was stopped mm-hmm. mid-scene mm-hmm. or mid-dialogue um now you have Jonathan you brought up uh Blair Witch 2 is there a chance we could see with the way this film was done a animal among us too with a different different focus but still heading into the same area to the same um, campground? Yes, I, I would I would say the answer is yes to that. Uh, there's a couple of ideas uh, that we've um, discussed and maybe a couple of different stories or scenarios that would um, I have a very uh, specific I guess viewpoint on sequels I you know I, I'm I'm not always for you know having to necessarily continue on the the story exactly but I think there would be um, hints and and definitely the first part of the story would be a big part of it. But uh, it would be important to have something that I think, too, could stand alone. But, you know, that's that would only come if people really love the first one. And and like you guys said, are hungry and wanting for more. So but there have been a couple of discussions of what we could do. 
um, following this this one. Because me personally, the way I see it, it could be done and it could still be a standalone. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if there were any references to the first film, I think the references could potentially hold on its own without saying, well, yeah, I need to go back and watch the first one to understand what's going on. Right. That's, that's kind of what we've like been talking about is, is really, you know, the solid like franchises. I mean, you look at like Scream, they're all built on the mythology of the previous Screams, but they're all great standalone films. I mean, if you watch Scream 3, you totally understand what's happening. You totally get it. Same if, if you watch Scream 4. It's maybe just a little bit more enjoyable if you've seen all of them, but right. it works as a standalone film. And mm-hmm. I think, again, like in the screenwriting process, I think Jonathan did a really good job of like laying down that foundation um, and presenting those those strings that could be pulled into a sequel um, that would allow it still, though, to be satisfying as its own unique piece and not, you know, reliant as far as being a cumulative work completely right. built off of the first one, you know? See, that, that's why I use the Blair Witch Project 2 as the example, okay. because 2 has nothing to do with the first one, mm-hmm. but does make reference to the tape that the f- yeah, right. first one is supposed to be. Mm. Um, I've always found that more interesting, and I've always found writers that, you know, somebody who's referenced a lot um, in the movie actually is um, Stephen King, and a lot of his writing you'll find he uses similar town names or, or the same character names or things pop up um, that almost kind of connect dots between one thing or another. And I think that that would be the interesting angle. At least I would start to approach that from is how can we, how can we have those that first film on the peripheral, but let this, you know, new story live on its own. Um, So that, that would be, that would be interesting to kind of start to think about if, you know, again, like I said, if people really, Really love it, and they want to see more. <laughs> yeah, I know me. I want to see more. So there's a good vote for that. All right, awesome. Well, thank you. Yeah, that's I great. That's what we hope. Now. I mean, when every time I turn on a, a a new scary movie, I'm I'm always looking for a similar experience to some of these older films that are just so much fun that people revisit again and again and again and. A lot of times with some of the newer stuff, I mean, not to hate on it, you know, it's like art is an evolution and each uh, era has its type and style of film. And maybe I'm just getting a little bit older and a little bit old fashioned, but I always find myself revisiting, you know, our old favorites and it's fun enough, but it makes you think enough and it's campy enough, but it's cool enough. And you just want to watch them over and over. And that was one of our goals with this. So um, to, to hear you say, you know, that you're left wanting more and would love to see more and had fun watching it. I mean, for, for us, I think it's safe to say, you know, mission accomplished because that very much was our goal was to make something fun and entertaining that people would want to revisit and see more of. Yeah. Now to switch gears a little bit slightly, there's one thing I wanted to say, and uh, there was a couple of times I can't remember specifically, but there was a couple of times in the movie where I noticed some really interesting camera angles. Um, and I was just wondering if, if you had um, anything specific in mind as far as uh, blocking the film and how you to look. And Jonathan's frozen with fear. Am or I John, frozen? No, uh, John, uh, John is frozen. Uh, did we lose him? Oh, I will. I will give my answer um, while we're trying to get a hold of John again. Um, there were t- a couple of the. 
um, angles and things that you're talking about, or maybe I'm guessing of what angles you're referencing. Um, I was actually surprised with during production when I went down and we were shooting and saw some of the um, setups. Um, one, because they were, oh, there he is. There yeah, he is. Apparently, uh, out here in the city of Angels, my uh, Wi Fi went down. So I jumped uh, off of the Wi Fi. Yeah. The miracle. LADWP, gotta love them. Yeah, man, I was, I was getting hyped about that question, too. No, and I, told, I just said, of course, uh, when they asked the director question, but I was just telling them. Um, it's what you get for living in a backwoods city. The, yeah. <laughs> a couple of the angles when I would come down and see setups or they were getting ready to shoot. Um, were surprising to me. I didn't expect those. Um, and when we started shooting and starting rolling on that stuff, and especially where you can really see it when we got into the editing process, when we can blow it up and see, um, was was some of the stuff that we were able to bring, I think, that was new. I'll let John um, get into more detail about his kind of vibe he was going for with that. But a lot of uh, the angles when I would go down for rehearsals and stuff and be able to watch, um, I was always happy with because they were things that didn't seem – typical or run-of-the-mill or things you'd seen a hundred times in this, that, or the other. I, you know, yeah, so I mean, uh, I guess to piggyback on that is it's interesting, I guess, the stuff you talk about, and these interviews are fun because of the stuff it brings up. I mean, it means a lot to me to hear Jonathan say that because um, I feel like in this whole process, you know, he gave me a big leg up. I mean, uh, he trusted me with his script and to direct it, and this was the first feature film that I had directed, and um, I'm a self-taught filmmaker, you know, um, so I'm happy to hear that, you know, when he would when he would come down, he was happy with what he was seeing, and I'm, I'm happy to hear that now that the film is done, you know, it's like people are noticing these things and they're finding them to be satisfying. Uh, Cause at the end of the day, it's uh <sighs> It's just how you serve the story and how you serve the scene, I think. And, and I think the greatest directors in the world, they don't get in the way of the story and the emotional beats of the story. It's like there has to be a level of restraint as far as like your creative choices. And am I doing this for me and because I can and because I want to be fancy and I want to be showy and show like, ooh, this big fancy directorial shot? Or am I doing this because it's what the story calls for? And I don't care, you know, if you're talking about Wes Craven or John Carpenter or Spielberg or Kubrick, those guys serve the story first. They and they have these great shots that are memorable and they're a little bit unique. But I think if you're truly serving the story, I think those opportunities for those shots present themselves. Um, kind of like a, a spontaneous moment for a writer or an actor. If that person is really fully tapped into telling that story, things are going to present themselves that they might not consciously think of. So I I hope that you know some of these things that stick out to you guys were just because I was really trying to like tap into what each individual scene was really about, what the central theme was, what the emotional beat was, and what was required to elicit that through the choices we were making in our coverage. Um, yeah, and I mean, that's, you know... that's We all got really lucky with locations, too. I mean, we found a location that ended up serving the story... Um, perfectly and yeah. to say that that's normal is probably not a it's probably not a common thing um, so we got really lucky with where we were able to shoot too I think that plays a part in it 
um, a big part in that. Totally. And I mean, we our, our director of photography was great. Um, it's it's actually a really funny story. We call him AGDP3. His name's Anthony Gutierrez, but, you know, and DP, obviously, director of photography. The three comes, though, from that he was literally like our third string director of photography. So <laughs> our first two guys ended up not working out. And I was aware of Anthony's work um, through mutual connections and associations. And so Jonathan and I are sitting in his home office, you know, a few weeks before production. And the guy that we thought was going to be our shooter was having visa trouble and he wasn't going to be able to shoot it. And we're like racking our brains. And I'm like, I know this guy. And we like checked out his demo and everything like that. Turns out that this guy's from uh, from Texas and Jonathan's from Texas. And we have a lot of mutual connections. So we got a hold of him. And he basically came up on a whim based on kind of like some of our mutual connections and the, the script and different things like that. And uh, he just really crushed it. You know, he was all in. I mean, he he didn't really question our motives. He didn't question our methodology. Um, we tried to be pre- as prepared as we possibly could. And he just, he crushed it, you know. So a lot of those uh, nice angles and nice shots really have to be attributed to just his uh, his abilities as a DP and an operator. Um, he was all in. And I mean, he was 100% committed and easy to work with. And he never let up. You know, they say the minute that you're director of photography, this is probably bad. You should probably not say this in an interview. They say uh, the minute your director of photography won't get on the ground to get a shot for you, like you've lost the day. And Anthony was always the guy that was willing to like get that shot for us. And I, I think that it paid dividends. Yeah. Cat. Go ahead, Derek. No, you go ahead. Casting. How'd y'all come about with the with y'all's choices for casting? Um. Casting really, a, a, a lot of it came down to um, who we could, you know, get a hold of personally and, and who we could sit down and, and have a conversation with and kind of explain um, to them. And, and they could see that we weren't too yahoos out here, you know, not knowing what we were getting ourselves into. Um, but really it was it was people that I had been fortunate enough to e- either work with or, or share representation with um, Larissa and I ha- had done a an independent film together so um, we called her up and and I think for her character I don't know what she would say about it but we definitely thought that her character on the page and then you know I don't think John necessarily saw her as um, Anita at first but when we sat down and and kind of saw her personality and and he saw what she would be able to infuse into that character uh, you know not only with their acting ability but just who she is and what she brings to the table as a person I mean it was it was a no-brainer after that um Christian, same thing, kind of. Uh, Christian and I had done um, a couple projects together, um, and he was all in from the very beginning, actually. Christian was one of the few people at the first meeting when when John and I met. Um, He was one of the guys that we brought in early because Christian literally – uh, had done what we wanted to do. He had taken a, one of his films to Sundance and had great success. And, you know, that was from first starting out, that was one of my ultimate goals was to go do that. 
Um, Aaron Daniels, wonderful actress who we I've worked with luckily a few times, had the same representative. Um, same with Heather Tom. And, you know, literally it was just John and I taking a time out to sit with them or, and, and explain what we wanted to do. And everybody really brought a team first attitude um, in terms of that. Uh, and we... We never really ran into anything that I'm sure a lot of other productions have horror stories and stuff, but it was first, who can we work with that we trust and who are friends and, and we can sit down with and, and we'll be into what we're doing. So I think we got lucky with a lot of our casting. And then John had connections to a lot of the other folks that we put in the in the film. Yeah, so then Christine Donnellan, the girl that plays Poppy, um, we shared representation out here in Los Angeles and had a tremendous amount of mutual friends by chance. Um, Don Fry, I've been friends with for a long time, probably since 2003, 2004. He's one of my closest friends. And then the girl that plays Lupita, Whitney Davis, um, she's from Ohio and her and I go way back. Uh, have been friends forever and just felt like she'd be a great fit for that role. So, you know, from a casting perspective and a crew perspective, I mean, we were a small, small project. So we had to try to find people that uh, were supportive of us and believed in the project uh, more than, you know, it just being like another gig because um, right, right. we, we just couldn't write the checks to make it worth people's while strictly from a monetary perspective. So <laughs> we like, tried, but we tried to stand. Yeah. But uh, definitely, you know, relied a lot on relationship and, and mutual connections and just the merit of the project in general and trying to sell them on, you know, our ability to make it. It's uh, I always like hearing that when, when it's, it's almost like a family atmosphere because you do hear a lot of horror stories about movies and people behind the scenes and things won't mention names bruce willis <laughs> <laughs> Wait, yeah, i lost you there for a second oh, what? What? sorry i had i had a cold i had a cough <laughs> yeah so it's always good to hear when people get along so well making a movie yeah, it's, you know, it's such an interesting process. It's such an interesting business and an interesting art form. And there's so many factors in the equation behind the scenes that affect people's perceptions of a project and affect their experience on a project, be it, you know, their representatives or the union or different, you know, different people on the crew, be it, you know, producers, casting agents or ADs. It's all a very delicate balance. And Obviously, everybody's coming into this thing with a different set of skills and life experiences and motivations, and you're in a pressure cooker of time and money, and you've got all these different personality types, many of which are very, very passionate. So it it is a bit like controlled chaos, and anything can happen. So I think, you know, from a producer perspective, and it's again something that Jonathan and I agreed on from the beginning is like how to alleviate ourselves of those potential like problems before we landed because one or two things and we still didn't one. avoid a bomb no still, it's impossible yeah i wish i could say that we did and every day was just like you know um it was just like happy times with the family and everything like that but even families have their trouble and we right. did too you know but that being said we tried to we tried to plan ahead so that we could weather the storm because one or two instances that go horribly awry can sink a an entire project of our 
size. I mean, we just don't have the money if we're going into radical levels of overtime. We don't have a tremendous amount of money for reshoots. We can't all of a sudden just add five, three, one day to our schedule. Like we literally have almost no margin for error. Now, Jonathan and I try to build into our scheduling. Oh, well, what if it rains here? Like we always had stuff stacked so that we could swap or if somebody got sick, we can like bump stuff around. But man, I mean, we had to run tight because we didn't have that luxury of like, oh, well, we slipped into overtime for an hour. You know, it's like, no, nah, we And a lot, we of, a lot of the credit goes to Larissa and Christian in that sense, too, because yeah. they really acted like professionals and number one and two on the call sheet, which we we really needed. And we can't forget, too, the great performance of John and I's mutual friend of Jasmine Dustin as, as Kara in the movie. She's, she's great. So yeah. all in all, we get, we, I think we got great performances by a lot of great actors. Mm. And yeah, they hit their marks. They knew their lines. They, I mean, they were efficient and they were effective and they were pros through and through. And it, it, we needed that to be like that. And we talked to them about that. We were very upfront with them in the meetings. You know, we were like, look, if you want to act like you're going to get to act in this film because we're doing long takes, like we can't do 18 setups to cover one actor, you know, in a scene. It's like, you're going to get your, you're going to get your wide shot, your medium and your close up, and, and we're moving. So they were all game and are true actors. So I think that that appealed to them on a lot of levels, you know. Who was the biggest prankster amongst the, the cast or crew? Good question. There's always one. Well, so one of the funniest stories that I became aware of after, so this was pretty neat because we shot on this 500 acre campground and this is a nice campground. They host fortune 500 company retreats. So it's like, we had nice places to stay. The food was good, but there were a lot of peripheral activities. You could go zip lining. You could go canoeing. You could go horseback riding. There was a swimming pool, but close to the campground was, um, uh, a theme park and what what I found out after the fact was one of my closest friends who uh, was a huge help on the production and was there the entire time and actually made some appearances he had to jump in some costumes a couple times for insert shots and whatnot but he was the one that had wrangled Roland's car for us the Saab which was a bit of a joke in and of itself because we wanted this guy to have this car that he thought was like a vintage classic and it was so cool but the normal person's kind of like Okay, guy. So the sob was like perfect, and this kid had wrangled the sob. So what we found out after the fact was one day, basically, he stole the sob with the director of photography and Larissa and Christine Donnellan, and they went to the theme park for the day. And John and I were so busy, we didn't even like miss him. We didn't miss the car. We didn't miss the people because our heads were just like spinning trying to keep up with everything. And after the fact, we found out that like these yahoos stole the picture car and went to the theme park down the street and rode roller coasters all day. So I think there was some behind the scenes shenanigans going on, but yeah. uh, a couple of us stayed pretty fo- focused, you know? Yeah, that's true. That's a, that's good. That's a good story. It's I, I you, you can find pictures now of them in that car and you can find pictures of them like on roller coasters and stuff like they popped up after the shoot. It's just like, you know, like, wait a minute here. Like, what? <laughs> so I think I think they had a good time riding around Ohio. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, it all worked out in the end. So it did. It did. It did. It did. So how how did the um, how did the the look of the monster come about? 
conversations? That's uh, that's a good question. Um, early on, when we were when I was kind of envisioning it, I would pull some images from different um, places to kind of add to a vision board. Um, but there were some classic kind of things. I don't think I'm giving too much away. Um, but there was, like I said earlier, the, you know, this is something that is exists out in the wild and in the wooded area, and and it is uh, something that uses the land as as a resource and mm-hmm. the things it can find and the things that it uh, comes across, no matter what they are. Um, so it, it really, I think the good thing or the, the solid approach we had in terms of that was not having too specific, uh, an idea in mind and, and, and in the film it's, uh, it's, it's referred to, and there's a lot of talk about a Bigfoot. Um, so, you know, we, we didn't also want to, again, with our theme of let's, let's pay a little bit of, uh, homage to the classics, but let's do something different. Um, I think that was at least my starting ground for uh, where the origin of the monster came from, look wise, and and what he's got going on. It's got going on, I should say. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I feel like we just kind of built on that throughout the process because we wanted something, you know, that these people had seen in the woods and that people were talking about. There are these murmurs of this thing in the woods. So to that regard you know, it had to be something that was relatively grounded in reality and believable, um, which to Jonathan's point necessitated a degree of functionality um, within that setting or that circumstance. But the interesting thing then about that was that because of the nature of our production, we also had to try to be a little bit conscientious of functionality of the costume and what we needed from a shooting perspective. So we needed people to be able to jump in and out of this like beast, like character and gear, like pretty quickly and effectively, which actually like worked very well with the nature of the beast in this story. So it was, it was just kind of interesting, you know, trying to like have those conversations and again, how much do we show and what don't we show and what would be believable and what would be too big or too wild or what would be too impractical from a shooting perspective or a functionality perspective. So, you know, at the end of the day, like like everything in the film, it was a precarious balance and, and hopefully we were able to uh, to find the, the right, you know, place to, to put our the weight of the vision on. I would say it was pretty successful. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you, yeah. <laughs> definitely, definitely was a major, um, major concern in the film. I mean, it, it has to be believable enough, you know. It's like you can lose people quick on that front if you don't do it right and a lot of animal among us takes place in broad daylight and there's a lot of encounters with this thing and you see it but you don't see it which was fun from a directorial perspective because you're always thinking you know murphy's writing like you know it jumps out of a tree and it ravages him and then it disappears and it's like man that reads great on the page but you're sitting there thinking like how exactly are we going to do that you know and i mean i think at the end of the day though i think i think we were able to to get there favorite moment filming scariest moment filming 
Well, favorite. So favorite scary. moment in the film or favorite moment while we were filming? While filming. And scariest while filming. I definitely know the scariest one while filming. All right. Yeah, yeah. You can start. You order first. Yeah, Murph might not realize that this was the scariest moment, but this was amazing. Like, I wish I had behind the scenes footage of this. Um, there's a moment where the cast is all pretty much together. And it, without trying to spoil it, there's an unassuming moment where the cast is together and they're kind of partaking in uh you know, a little bit of a communion and laughing a lot and talking and just having a, a good time. And an unexpected event occurs that causes them all to jump and hopefully will cause the audience to jump as well. And it's a pretty huge reveal in the movie and a little bit of one of our first little early misdirects and twists. So we're all sitting around uh, doing this scene and basically, man, I mean, almost every cast member that is present at the campground was in this scene. And so everybody's sitting there and there's a lot of lines and we're shooting two cameras and the person that's responsible for the jump moment. I think the scene was long enough that the cast and the camera ops forgot about the jump moment. So when the jump moment was executed, um, which I'm sure Jonathan remembers, it was amazing because, I mean, our camera ops literally almost fell out of their seats. The entire (laughs) cast jumped. The crew kind of yelled. It was one of those super late nights. It was the last thing we were shooting. Everybody was a little bit tired. It was kind of an intimate, nice scene, very atmospheric, and everybody's just really getting into it. And then all of a sudden, like, everybody forgot about that big jump moment and made the whole cast and crew jump. And that was probably the scariest scariest moment I think that I'm aware of. That's and great. What was the other favorite, favorite moment? Favorite moment, yeah. Yeah. My scariest moment, mine is almost like death by a thousand cuts because being a producer, I had many scary moments, whether <laughs> whether it was um, a battery on the camera not working or, or if someone missed their flight or, or, you know, these pair of shorts don't fit someone or, you know, we're out of paper. I don't know any kind of thing that you can think would um, come up, came up. Um, you know, Don Fry, someone wanted him for another movie while we were shooting. So they're calling me while we're trying to work stuff out to get it. So um, <laughs> those moments were, were I say, scary, but, um, you know, stressful. Uh, but I think uh, my favorite moments, too, were a lot of those moments where you saw this uh, – living, breathing thing of crew and cast and scripts and cameras and and these things that uh, were out there making a movie. But um, it all started from this small idea sitting in a room at a typewriter. It kind of is... uh, all of those collective memories are my favorite moments of production. Okay. So you go old school and use an actual typewriter instead of... I wish. <laughs> I wish. I make too many errors and mistakes. I'm too frenetic with writing and rewriting to use a typewriter. That's been a fortune on ink bands. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. A favorite moment, like from a shooting perspective, really, I mean, it's really hard to say. It's it's such a such an emotional roller coaster, man. And I mean, Murph and I were the two lead producers on it. So we were kind of pulling double duty as far as he was writer producer and also obviously acted in the film. And I was director producer. And uh, people said, you know, like, oh, yeah, man, there goes there that L.A. Internet once again, the L.A. Internet again, (laughs) the city of angels. 
not of Wi-Fi, apparently. <laughs> um, I was just thinking, though, until he jumps back in, uh, I was trying to think of, you know, re-racking my brain of all the moments of us shooting and, and what was my favorite thing to shoot. But um, like Sorry, I said, we got, we got really got lucky with locations. Here he is. We got lucky with locations, so it's really hard to pick out a moment, you know, because... I think for what we did, we got super, super. We think that we we scored above average on you know everything that was kind of going on, even with the tough times and stressful moments and things like that. But he can yeah. tell. Yeah, no, because I mean it's it's an emotional roller coaster and it's challenging. So it's just overall like the fact that you are there with your friends and um you know day by day like you're getting closer to like getting this entire thing in the can and uh and kind of sharing in that with with like minded people people overall it's like really rewarding you know but but to try to peg it as, as far as like a single moment in shooting like for me is i'm like jonathan like it's really really tough um i think too a lot of the moments are are private moments we had while not shooting you know just sitting there having a conversation over a sandwich or or, or something with uh, somebody that will remain kind of encapsulated in this whole experience and and there's a lot of those to go around so yeah because i mean to that point like it's a very personal and very intimate process you know so Mm -hmm. it's like we shot in ohio close to where i grew up it was neat for me um having moved to la and meet murph out here and everything like that that he kind of got to come back to like my area of the world to like you know bring this vision to life and then we were spending a lot of time with my family you know it's like my sister was on the shoot and she's an attorney my little sister and she helps us a lot with like kind of our legalities and stuff so it was cool that they got to spend some time together and my mom and dad were able to come down to the shoot and kind of kick around and see what we were doing so stuff like that like made it really special um like like jonathan was saying just in the interim you know it's like between like tackling like this epic undertaking you know it's like those kind of like really personal moments with people that you like sincerely care about like made it a pretty pretty uh special thing yeah it's it's that's definitely good to hear yeah and i mean don't like it, it is funny like don't get us wrong you know definitely challenging i mean like jonathan said we probably Probably got ourselves in over our head. I was always joking with him about it, saying like, oh, we're going to get ourselves in so much trouble. And we kind of kept that running joke going about how we were getting ourselves in trouble just because not in any like uh, legal sense of the matter or anything like that, but just it was a really huge undertaking. So it was good to kind of have like those people around as well, because like like Murph was saying, you know, it's on a day to day basis, like a lot of like challenges, um, a lot of unforeseen like obstacles. And at the end of it, you know, they, they kind of say filmmaking is just creating creative problem solving and I'll tell you the once that scared I the most scared I was of the entire shoot is the day that I had to climb up that stupid watchtower that Larissa stands out looking across the landscape I had to go up there and I am not a fan of heights and I had to go up there three and a half or four stories and stand up there I was about up there 10 seconds and made my way down thank you very much Yeah, I don't blame you for that. No. It was funny because that old watchtower, too, it kind of sways a little bit, you know? It's just totally yeah. that when you get yeah. up there, it kind of moves. So um, there were several people that weren't huge fans of that. <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah. 
But I'm sure there are other people who enjoyed watching people go up that tower. Oh, oh sure. yeah, the majority of the crew, sick, they sick, stuck to the ground. Course. I think they were having a grand old time, you know, <laughs> maybe four of us up there. Yeah. So, but yeah, it was uh, definitely a once-in-a-lifetime experience and kind of special, too, just because, you know, no two productions are exactly the same. So I think your first one's always special. And um, now as we're, like, nearing distribution and sales and with the reception that we've received um, this far, you know, it's just, like, really happy that, that this is our first one. You know, it's like, I'm proud of it. I think Jonathan's proud of it. Um, we've gotten a great reception on the festival circuit. It's like um, our distributor is crushing it. Clint, you guys mentioned October Coast over at October Coast is crushing it. Getting a lot of attention that we didn't expect to get. And uh, yeah, it, it makes it very makes it very worthwhile. And I, I'm happy to know, you know, that in 5, 10, 15, 20 years, it's like uh, I'll look back and be very, I think, proud and happy that this was our first film, you know, and hopefully Jonathan feels the same. because and, and since John said that, I'll do the company line really quick and I, I'll tell you guys exactly if you'll let us a minute where you can where you'll be able to find it on November 19th I have the spots in front of me there's there's 10 places it's going to be available or excuse me nine right now um, it'll be up on Amazon and iTunes uh, Fandango Now Google Play uh, Dish Network Pay-Per-View DirecTV Cinema In Demand Pay-Per-View Xbox Live Voodoo and John said I believe earlier that we'll be hitting Walmarts in the first bit of December. And family video too. Family video will be out there. Yes. And then um, hopefully months after that, we'll be on some of the hosted streaming platforms, but more info to come on that uh, soon. Very cool. I have to look for it at Walmart when it comes up. Absolutely. We're we're super hyped that we're getting a physical release. I mean, that's uh, in a way, it's kind of a rarity in this day and age, especially beyond uh, either huge films or self distribution. But for mid level films, I mean, it's not a common thing. Obviously, sadly, there aren't a lot of video outlets left that carry hard copies of films. So yeah. Walmart's one of the few family videos. Uh, you know, not so many of them left, and they only have so much shelf space. So to be able to to be able to get it into those those places is just is really cool man yeah that's yeah you're right you don't see that as much as like back in the old blockbuster days or yeah it's like a band out there still printing an lp record you know yeah, pretty you, much. you get to go out there you still get to cover art and all the cool stuff you know and that, that for guys that grew up with stuff like that it means a little something still oh, I yeah think. oh yeah 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 it yeah. definitely makes it more real there, i mean there, you always saw that stuff like this sitting there and now you can have one too you know yeah, there there's specific groups I will still go out and buy CDs for. Yeah, uh, being records you bought multiple times. Yeah, yeah. Uh, both of us are part of a Star Wars podcast, and I'll admit I am one. Star Wars soundtrack comes out as long as there's a hard copy. I will yeah, buy it because sure. that, that's just one of those things that I will. I, I, I like having in my in my personal catalog is For sure is the Star Wars soundtracks. And I will go find different ideation or different variations of the of the soundtrack. Sure. Yeah, there's something cool about when you can get your hands on physical copies of stuff. You know, we were talking earlier before the interview kind of about like film and analog and all these different iterations of media. And um, it's interesting. I mean, the influence that it has on our lives and the experiences that surround it and the memories um, that are associated with it. And so, you know, for us to be able to have any type of a physical release like in this day and age on our first feature film, like I think kind of like what Jonathan said, we all grew up in an era where, man, you were going to Blockbuster on Friday night or the local video store because 
the only way you were going to see any movies that weekend. And even then you were limited on what, how many you could rent, how long you had them. And, yep. you know, it made it a really memorable and, and special experience. So just for the sense of nostalgia and sentiment, uh, it's amazing that we have that physical release. And obviously, hopefully, as you guys picked up on in the film, like we really tried to play heavy to the nostalgia and the sentiment in this film with kind of like homage to the 80s and yeah. this, you know, what I'd kind of call the golden era of the horror icon, you know? Mm, yeah, I did, I did catch on some of that. Yeah, especially with the, the whole campground, you know, Merrymaker. Like, okay, yeah. this is Crystal Lake. Yeah, we, so. it was interesting. I mean, it was important to try to get it to feel, to feel familiar from like a genre perspective and for audiences. But at the same time, again, like try to steer in a bit of a new direction or a little bit of a different direction. So it was a little bit unpredictable. Like we wanted to give people something familiar, but we didn't want to just give them the same thing that they'd been watching for the last 30, 40 years, you know? So that was, it was a bit of a, bit of a challenge, but I'm happy with, with kind of how it turned out. I mean, as far as like even the visuals and the looks, look at the film, I've noticed a lot of newer films are um, very muted in their color palettes and almost monochromatic. So we decided to just try to go the polar opposite and make it as saturated and as colorful as we possibly could. And a lot of the new horror films are playing like very, very straight laced, like they take themselves stone cold seriously. So we didn't want to take ourselves too seriously. We want to try to kind of have a little bit of fun. And like we were talking about earlier, balance that camp and that cool factor, yeah. like you see with those films. And even we used uh, a lot of different like in-camera filtration uh, techniques and photography techniques just to uh, try to soften the image up a little bit to make it feel a little bit more um, film-esque, if you will, you know, try to tone down the digital qualities. Uh, so everything's just so sharp and like hard and crystal clear in this day and age. And right. again, going back to what we were talking about earlier with less is more and leaving something to the imagination, um, there really is something to allowing things be to be lost in dark and lost in the shadows and not knowing like what's just behind these characters because when you can see everything is perfectly illuminated, you lose that, you know? So really just try to play to a lot of those those aesthetics of that period of film, I guess. But you know, I kind of like the uh, the more daylight scenes or or near near dusk scenes where you can still see a lot of stuff around but you still don't you still don't know what's there yeah we wanted to show like the scope of this area that they were in that these characters are in that they're like really in isolation and that there could even in broad daylight something could be watching you from maybe 20 30 yards away but the forest is thick enough and versatile enough that you would never know it so it was fun to kind of shoot those scenes with that in mind um, that these characters were always being watched or that there could always be something like that shouldn't be there watching them, you know, right. definitely like try to play to that in the daylight stuff as well, because it's, it's an interesting challenge. Like how do you make stuff spooky in broad daylight? And a few films have done it great. I, Jaws did it great. Tremors did it great. But mm. both of their creatures were either like hidden by water or hidden by the ground. So Predator is freaking 90% shot in the daytime and phenomenal. We pulled from Predator a lot because it was just like, how do you show things without showing things? How do you make the woods like work to your advantage? Right. And and so those daylight scenes were a lot of fun in trying to like maintain that. And I think to what Jonathan said earlier, even the opening scene, you know, you've got a girl, a bloody girl rolling around on the ground and you're in this woods and, you know, there's things all around you that you don't even expect, hopefully, or see or know that's there and really try to set that standard hard and fast right off the top. Well, I, I like the opening scene was good because you you could tell something bad was 
happening, but you couldn't tell what was going on exactly. Right. So I think I think it worked really well. Thank you. And we shot we shot what happens. We shot what was going on, and it 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 is a. Literally, I can say a very strong homage to Predator, um, the things that we shot for what happens, um, I guess you could say prior or in between the cuts of that first scene. Um, but it, it just, recorded, in the end, recorded. in the end, it just felt more, I guess, natural to jump right into it. And mm. again, less is more mentality. Yeah. Well, and really trying to maintain the emotion of that character's perspective, you know, so um, we literally decided we wanted to drop the audience in to her emotional state of being. And it's like, she's confused. She doesn't know what's going on. She has an idea of where she's at. And we felt like that, that just uh, that opening shot really um, in handling it that way really kind of puts the audience like right there with her and you're aware enough of what's going on but there's enough question to like kind of pull you through and and that shot is my reference for that shot was um, from the beginning of the third act of Predator when Arnie is covered in mud and you yeah. know you, you, you see you see what happens next like that literally like if you go back and watch that scene and then you watch this opening scene in Animal as far as like placement of characters um, and blocking that's a very like direct reference <laughs> it, it writes itself right there in the front the the cover for the blu-ray dvd the less is more aspect what makes a movie great we be geeks yeah yeah i like there it there you go I like it. <laughs> So, and I think that's one of the key things that we've been talking about tonight, how, you know, I guess our underlining subplot with the conversation is the less is more has been so awesome with this. Mm. Definitely glad to find people that appreciate that and recognize that, you know, because obviously there's a lot of negative stigmas in horror and um, we really try to steer clear of those as far as like from uh, an exploitation perspective of being like overly gratuitous or overly exploitational. Um, Jonathan and I had a lot of conversations about that um, because obviously again there's certain expectations certain cliches certain tropes that you see in these films a lot of them are extreme levels of gore and a lot of like uh, strong you know sexual situations but kind of like what we were talking about earlier that the interesting aspect of it is is when you go back and you look at the greatest horror films throughout history um, those components are downplayed severely right. even when you go back to like the original Friday the 13th I mean it's like no nudity in that film really to speak of um, a lot of implied violence, but you don't really see anything. Right. And it's just like a really solid, creepy story. And same with Jaws, same with Alien, same with The Shining, same with Predator, same with Tremors. It's like the list goes on and on and on. It's like same with the original Nightmare on Elm Street, same with Scream, same with The Thing, same with The Exorcist. It's like any of your top horror films of all times, they don't really like deal with that. And so right. it was one of the things that we challenged ourselves to do is not fall into like those those uh, negative stigmas or cliches that are so prevalent in independent horror where maybe, I don't know, people feel a need to compensate or they feel a need to offer an audience that in order to entertain them. And we just feel like with a strong story and strong characters, like you don't really need that stuff. And the list of films that you can just rattle off off the top of your head kind of stands as proof of that, you know, so. Did, did that come to um, a bit of relief with, with your cast? With, with them discovering 
There's not going to be a lot. I mean, you, you had the one scene in the community shower. Yeah. And even that was, you know, nothing more than what you would see on, on primetime TV. Totally. Right. Yeah. We And it's one of the things that we talked about, Murph and I, from a writer-director perspective, and then also, like, with the cast and crew, was, okay, what is that scene about? Like, what is, what is the central, like, statement that's being made in that scene? And the scene isn't about sex. Um, the scene isn't about nudity. The scene isn't about exploitation. The scene is about succumbing to temptation. And mm-hmm. so how do you focus the scene to that? Like played homage to the graduate in that scene from, if you guys kind of remember yeah. how it works with her stepping in the frame, direct reference from the graduate, one of the greatest shots probably in the history of cinema and yeah. very much just stay true to this is about succumbing to temptation. It's nothing more. It's nothing less, you know? And um, I, I hope that that came to some relief for our cast and crew. The film is built around <laughs> Around very very strong female characters which was one of the things that I think really appealed to both um, to Murph and I and obviously he wrote them you know but it's like the women really drive this story like the women really are the the people that drive the narrative in this and the guys are like more of the people being pulled through or the secondary characters which is something that ironically maybe we haven't gotten a tremendous amount of comments on yet like from people that have watched the film but I, I think will come with time I think that Murphy wrote it in such a way and that the acting is just so solid that um, you don't really notice that like, whoa, whoa, wait, like this is actually a horror film. It's very much like set in homage to 80s horror films. But the women in this film aren't the scream queens. The women in this film aren't the ones that are being like chased around trying to stay alive. Like the women in this one are the ones that are driving the narrative and they're pulling the men through, which, mm-hmm. you know, also kind of supported that whole thing of not handling the material in an exploitational manner. And I'm sure speaking as someone who has um, done some maybe what could be called uncomfortable scenes, um, I'm sure it was some bit of relief to, you know, not have to strip all the way down and, and be vulnerable in front of the cast and 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 crew and all that sort of stuff. But I think um, Christine and, and Christian in that scene uh, handled it like pros and they they got what every they got everything we needed and what John is is talking about for the essence of that scene. And it wasn't about, you know, this is about showing off skin Um, because that kind of, to me, is a little bit uh, underselling the moment. Right. Um, See, passing the buck along. You you said, you know, it was was fighting temptation. I kind of saw it as, you know, there's a little manipulation going on as well with that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And that's being specifically the Poppy characters, I would say, very much in charge. Mm, and yeah. with hopefully without like spoiling anything, I mean, you guys kind of hit on it earlier. It's it, the film kind of hopefully makes people question throughout and in each scene, like who is the animal, who is the monster in each scene. And really, when you go back and watch it, in a lot of these scenes, there is someone that's a little bit more the predator and a little bit more cunning that has an agenda and another character that's a little bit more the victim or the one that's being chased, be it like metaphorically or literally. And that this scene is definitely like a prime example of that from a protagonist perspective it's really about um temptation from roland's perspective but to your point as far as a central theme for the entire film uh you know very much about manipulation and being hunted so kind of makes it a lot of fun you know yeah definitely <laughs> oh i know we mentioned know we mentioned in the beginning of the, the beginning of the show that um that uh, this 
we had the cameras on for that sitting around the table type vibe so we could see each other and do, you know, like we're sitting at, at a restaurant, a bunch of appetizers around going, hey, let's just chat. Well, because of that, we, we've had you guys on for quite some time. And I would love to continue yeah, this. What time it is. <laughs> um, definitely you guys are both welcome back at any time in the future um thank you even if it you know if castmates want to come back on as well with you guys that's great where can people find you guys and find the movie on social media Go ahead, so got, we're um on instagram we're at animal among us facebook we're at animal among us mm-hmm. um imdb animal among us if you've happened to see the film you know and you want to give us a positive review like on animal among us like all always helps like we always appreciate it um and if you want to contact us probably the two best ways are through our contacts that are listed on imdb and then also through our social media um and then the festivals we have a couple festival appearances coming up yeah that's a good point we're actually playing in atlanta tonight at the first annual uh horror origins film festival and super freaking bummed i missed that one man it's like it's it's the one festival that i just wasn't able to swing getting to and really looks like a stellar festival uh the director down there uh his name's brandon waits phenomenal guy um and let's see it's 9 40 yeah literally animal among us probably just finished like not too long ago in atlanta so hopefully some people caught that then we're playing twin falls in idaho um this think about this this coming weekend not not tomorrow but the weekend after that so like around november 1st and 6th 1st and 2nd wow um and then we're playing we're really excited we're playing a lone star film festival in fort worth on november 16th we've got the saturday night spot 10 p.m and we're like hyped about it because we're actually following terrence malick's film um so his plays at eight and an animal among us plays at 10 so it's just crazy to even be like listed with uh, a filmmaker as prolific as that and and in a festival that's that prestigious and that kind of wraps up our festival run because then the film's available on the 19th so trailer on youtube trailer on youtube um just type in google animal among us and that's going to take you to all of our social media handles they're all up on there and got to give it again to like just to, to clint over at october coast and to keith over at uncorked it's like these guys from a, a publicity and distribution perspective are absolutely just crushing it so to murph's point you type it's so fun i mean you just type animal among us into google and get pages of stuff popping up so we're, we're thrilled you know and thank you guys for taking the time and and we appreciate that they thank you guys for making a film that less is more Awesome. We're glad you guys appreciate it. And yeah, I mean, thanks again for having us on, and, and thanks for sharing, you know, your sentiments with uh, with us about the film. It's really fun to hear, and we're glad that um, glad that you guys enjoyed it. Definitely. Thank you. Thank you for all the geeks who are listening out there. We we love our geeks. Derek, any final thoughts? Um, nope, I got nothing. <laughs> well, if you guys can hang tight, I, I think we have a couple things that are spoilers that we don't want to talk about on air with y'all real quick. Sure. I think other than that, listener-wise, um, this I think with this, this episode, this is one that's going to make you ask. Want to know more? <laughs> So, um, the bad crowd you've been hanging out with is a science fiction club? 
This has been a Weeby Geeks production.